Today's scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you please join me now in prayer? Let's pray together. And Father, now as we have heard your word being publicly read, we now eagerly wait in anticipation for what it is you have for us to learn this morning. Father, would you help us now as we have now laid our burdens at your feet, as we have now laid our frustrations, our struggles, our fears. Father, casting them aside and trusting them into your care. For Lord, is that not the kind of God that you are? You are the God who invites us, your people, to lay the burdens that we carry upon your capable hands, knowing that everything works out for the glory of your great name, for the good of your people. And so, Lord, we cling to that promise, and we ask now that you would speak mightily to us through your word. Father, we pray especially for those among us here who may not know you, who are seeking after you. Father, would you grant them the illumination and the revelation that they need so that they would not only be persuaded but lead to the conviction that you are who you claim to be and that they are who they've always known to be and need assurance of that beautiful truth. Father, would you now bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let me ask you guys this question. Have you ever heard that word life metaphor before? Anyone ever heard that word before, life metaphor? If you're like me, you probably have never heard that word before. But if you're also like me, you will recognize an example of a life metaphor when you hear it. Let me give you a couple of common life metaphors that you may have heard throughout your life. Here's a couple. Life is like a box of chocolates. You'll never know what you're going to get. How about this one? Life is a carousel. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, and sometimes you go round and round. How about this one? Life is a game of cards. You have to play the hand that you're dealt with. And, of course, this very famous one in the 80s, life is short, play hard. A life metaphor is your view of life in the form of an image or an analogy to an experience in life that helps us explain the purpose of life, the meaning of life, the goal of life. The life metaphors that I've just read to you are some of the more popular, common ones you may have heard in the movies, read in a book, or seen in an advertising on TV. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, what life metaphor would the Bible teach us? If you ask this question to the Bible, Bible, what is the Bible's life metaphor? Well, if you asked our passage, it would spat out this answer. Life is ministry you were created to serve. 
The life metaphor that the Bible would teach us is that life is ministry. You were created to serve. We're beginning a new exciting sermon series entitled METS, M-E-T-S, which stands for Members Equipped to Serve. You guys like that? Huh? My wife came up with it. I got to give her credit, you know, because I want to take credit for it, but I can't because I'm before God and he might strike me down for lying. But members equipped to serve, M-E-T-S, METS. And for the next six weeks, we're going to see how God created you and I to view life not like a box of chocolates, not like a carousel, not like a game of cards, and not like a short time where you just play hard all the time. No, we're going to see how the Bible teaches us that life is viewed as ministry. Life is ministry. And today... We're going to do an introductory sermon that introduces this whole idea so that we can have a broad general overview of what these ministries God has called you and I to serve in. So with that in mind, two things I'd like to share with you this morning. First, I want to talk about this idea of every member is a minister. Every member is a minister. And then secondly, finally, I want to talk about the ministries every member has. Every member is a minister and the ministries every member has. Let's jump right in. First, Every member is a minister. Let me ask you a quick pop quiz. How many pastors do we have here at NCF? Hmm? How many pastors do we have here at New Creation Fellowship? Now, most of you are probably going to say, oh, we have two pastors, right? Because you're thinking of me and you're thinking of Pastor James, our newly hired assistant pastor. And I can completely understand why you would give that answer. But you need to understand this. You are wrong, okay? We do not have only two pastors. Now, to be fair, this is a trick question, right, as it always is. Because when we think of pastors, we normally think of those men who have been theologically trained, who went to graduate school, master's level uh, theological school, and who have been vetted and examined through some sort of denominational association for them to be verified that they have been called into the ordained ministry. And, of course, that's right. That is one correct way of understanding the phrase pastor. Because even in our own passage in verse 11, Paul tells us that one of the special offices God has given the church are pastor teachers, or in our translation says shepherd teachers. Shepherd and pastor are essentially the same word, okay? So yes, indeed, right? Pastors are, ordained pastors are specific offices in the church, and they are special servants in the church. But look at what Paul says in verse 12 in regards to the goal of a pastor's work. What is the goal of a pastor's job, of his ministry in the church. What does he say? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. That word saints is referring to all the lay people, all the members of the church, all of you, okay? All of you sitting right there, which tells us what? It tells us pastors like myself and Pastor James are to serve you, not primarily to give you a wonderful Sunday worship experience, not primarily to inspire you with deep and insightful sermons, not to officiate your weddings, not to baptize your children, as important as those things are. No, the primary purpose of my service to you and Pastor James's service to you is to equip you to do ministry. In other words, we are here, God has called us as your pastors to equip you to be a minister, or if you want to call it, a pastor, however you want to refer to it. You see, the Apostle Paul is teaching us that it's not only ordained ministers like myself who do ministry. Rather, it's every Christian who does ministry because as far as Paul is concerned, every member of the church, which means every Christian that walks on this earth, is a minister of God. In fact, later on, the Apostle Peter verifies this by saying the exact same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Listen to what he says. And you are living stones that God is building up, 
into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. And reflecting on this passage, the great Reformed theologian Martin Luther says this, In this way, we are all priests, clothed and adorned with the same holiness of Christ. This is the beautiful and glorious priesthood of those who are always in the presence of God and serve him with a true and holy service. Our priestly garments are nothing else than the beautiful, divine, and various gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, Peter is saying, Luther is saying, every Christian is a pastor. Every Christian is a minister. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're kind of freaking out. You're like, wait a minute. I don't know if I signed up for this when I said yes to Jesus at that retreat all those years ago. You know, this is not what I signed up for. Pastor, I can't do what you do. I can't preach sermons in front of people. I hate public speaking. I can't do counseling. I need counseling. I can't study Greek and Hebrew. I barely pass fifth grade Spanish. I can't read those heavy, dusty theological books. I can't pray all the time, right? I'm too much into TV and video games. I can't do that. To which my response is, so what? No one's telling you that you have to do those things. Now, some of you are like, wait a minute. I'm confused now. You're saying that every Christian is a minister and you're a minister and you do these things like preach from the Bible in front of crowds of people. You, you pray, you read tons of books, you do counseling, and yet you're saying that I'm a minister, but I don't have to do those things as well. Please explain. Well, let me explain. Let's read again verse 7 and 8 of our passage where Paul writes this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Do you see how Paul says at the end of verse 8 that Jesus gave gifts, gifts to men? You see the pluralization of that word gift? Not gift, he gave gifts, multiple gifts to men. He is saying that God gives us of various kinds of gifts, spiritual gifts, so that we can do various kinds of ministry. In fact, go back to the quote that Luther just stated. He said that every Christian has been given various gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see, when Paul says that every Christian is a minister, he's not saying that every Christian does the exact same thing that an ordained minister does. No, there are different kinds of wide variety of ministries that is reflected in the fact that there are a wide variety of spiritual gifts. For example, some ministry require more word-oriented gifts like preaching and teaching, whereas other ministries require more deed-oriented gifts like mercy and hospitality. Some ministries require more public-oriented gifts like faith, leadership, and discernment, while as other ministries require more behind-the-scenes-oriented gifts like intercession, helps, and giving. Other ministries require more relationally-oriented gifts like shepherding, missions, and evangelism, whereas other ministries require more function oriented gifts like administration and helps. Here's the point. Every single Christian, every single one of you who claims to be a follower of Jesus has a wide variety of gifts because there are a wide variety of ministries that God calls each and every one of you to serve in. Now, before I go on, I do want to make one point of clarification. Whenever you try to figure out what your spiritual gifts are, do not make the mistake into thinking that once you figure out what they are, that you're now free to make up whatever weird, obscure, unique ministry that just fits you and only you. You know, there are some people, once they discover what their spiritual gifts are, they want to come up with the most creative, unique, 
undone, unrepeatable kind of ministry that only they can do and nobody else. You know, like evangelistic basket weaving or cafe mocha missions. These are real terms that I've once heard people create ministries for. What, what is that? Right? No. Your set of spiritual gifts are to equip you to do a specific kind of ministry. Look again at what Paul says in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. You see that word ministry? That's singular. It doesn't say for the work of ministries, but the work of ministry. One specific ministry. What is this one specific ministry? He tells us in the next phrase. For building up the body of Christ. All of the various spiritual gifts that God gives to the church is for the sole purpose of building up the body of Christ. Not to build up your ego, not to build up your own sense of personal satisfaction, not to build up your own sense of fulfillment and self-esteem. No, the primary and ultimate purpose of your spiritual gift is not to build yourself up individually, but to build this community up, to build up Christ. Okay? But what exactly does that mean? To build up the body of Christ. That seems like such a very generic phrase. What is Paul actually saying with this idea of building up the body of Christ? Well, this leads me to my next and final point. The ministries every member has. Now, as an ordained pastor, I have a ministry, right? What is my ministry? This, you guys, this church, this is my ministry. NCF is my ministry. But within my ministry of NCF, I have multiple ministries I am personally responsible for multiple ministries that make up the ministry of NCF, right? I'm responsible for the ministry of Sunday worship where I have to preach sermons. I have to put together a liturgy. I have to make sure I find leaders to lead the corporate portions of the worship service and the welcoming team and so forth. I'm also responsible for the ministry of counseling where I have to be responsible for premarital counseling, marriage counseling, vocational counseling, grief counseling. I'm responsible for the ministry of leadership where I have to oversee the pastoral ministry, pastoral staff, the the administrative staff, the D-board. I am responsible for multiple ministries by overseeing the one ministry of NCF. And here's the thing. These various ministries that make up the ministry of NCF are not ministries that I came up with. These are not the ones that I created. These are ministries that were set in place already determined by God. And the same is true for every Christian. Every Christian, even though they have various spiritual gifts and can express those in various spiritual kinds of ministries. All these various spiritual ministries does one thing, to build up the body of Christ. But within that main ministry of building up the body of Christ are determined, fixed ministries that every Christian is called to do. And here in our passage, I believe, Paul identifies for us five specific ministries that every Christian is called to do, that every Christian is equipped by God to serve as a minister. Let's go through them. First, the first ministry, which also is the most important ministry that we are to do if we want to build up the body of Christ, is what? Know God. Look at the first half of verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. God, the knowledge of the Son of God. Here Paul tells us that if you want to build up the body of Christ, first priority, first and foremost ministry that you must focus on is the ministry that you have to God 
by knowing him. That is the most important priority ministry that you have as a follower of Jesus. Your first priority as a follower is your ministry to God by knowing him. And when I say knowing him, I mean growing in obedience to God, growing in dependence on God, and growing in affection for God. Let me say that again. Knowing God means growing in obedience to God, dependence on God, and affection for God. Here's the question. Why is this ministry so important? Why does God say this is the most important ministry before you do any other ministry? Why is this first and foremost? Well, I want to quote to you a wonderful portion of a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous London preacher back in the late 1800s, because I think he gives a brilliant answer as to why knowing God is our first priority in our first ministry. He writes this. Quote, there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with a thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with a thought that vain man would be wise. But he instead is like a wild ass's colt and with a solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Notice how Spurgeon describes God here. God is so mysteriously deep, so intriguingly complex, so terrifyingly beautiful that when you compare yourself to this God, you feel so small. You feel so insignificant, which means you don't think you're the center of this world. You don't think you're the center of this universe. You don't think that your needs and your desires and your expectations should go ahead of anyone else. You see yourself for what you are as an insignificant, humble creature which doesn't advocate for itself so much because you know in your heart of hearts you are nothing. You are dust. You are but of yesterday, as Spurgeon says. But that's not all because Spurgeon goes on to say that God is so infinitely comprehensive and so full of truth that you never feel the need to go on some self-consumed quest to find yourself or to seek after some elusive answer out in this world that will make you feel complete. No. Spurgeon says when you know God, You have a sense of inner settledness within you to where you're no longer continued distracted with yourself because you're in the presence of someone who will help you know who you truly are, the person that you could never hope to find by plodding around this narrow globe, as he says. This is why knowing God is our first and foremost ministry because it allows us to stop focusing on ourselves to where we can start focusing on other people, which is what we need to do if we want to do ministry in building up the body of Christ. This is why knowing God is the first priority, because it gives you the attitude of a servant. It gives you the mindset to where you don't have to put your needs first, because by knowing God, all of your needs are met. And therefore, you're now ready to move on to do the other various ministries. So let's do that now. Let's focus on the other ministries that God calls us to do 
in addition to knowing him. Look again to what Paul says in verse 13 where he writes this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. You see that word unity? That little word encapsulates the second ministry that God calls every Christian to do, and that is to serve as ministers to other Christians, to serve in ministry, to serve people in the church. We didn't include these verses in our reading this morning, so let's go back up to verses 1 to 3 and read it now. Paul says this in verses 1 to 3 in Ephesians 4. He says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Here, Apostle Paul is telling us that every Christian, not just every pastor, ordained pastor, every Christian is responsible for maintaining the unity that God had created, that Jesus created when he died on the cross for us. Okay? When Jesus spilled his blood on the cross, it created unity between Christians. You're thinking, how did he do that? How did Tim dying on the cross, how did him spilling his blood create unity amongst Christians? Think of it this way. When my wife gave birth to our three children, she spilled blood for them. Literally. A lot of it. I was there. I saw. Right? But from that act of spilling blood for those children, that act resulted in creating a unity between child number one, child number two, and child number three. It's the unity of family. It's the unity that comes from the spilling of one blood that they share. The same is true when it came to Jesus. When he died on the cross and he spilled his blood, it resulted in a unity between Christians, even amongst Christians who don't like each other, even amongst Christians who don't get each other, even amongst Christians who don't click and get along with one another. It created unity. Because we are all covered and under the same blood that was spilled on our behalf. We are united together. We don't create unity, okay? When you hear sermons like, hey, let's create unity with one another, that is wrong. We don't need to create unity. It was already created for us when Jesus died, when he spilled his blood for us as our Savior. We don't need to create it, but we need to maintain it. We need to make sure that we recognize the unity that we already have and maintain it. How? Verse 16, Paul tells us, when each part, that is when each member of the church is working properly, when each member of the church is doing ministry in the church so that the body grows up and builds itself up in love. Paul tells us that the second ministry that every Christian is called to do is the ministry of serving in the church, which means what? Hear me when I say this, and I want you to listen carefully. It means if you're not serving in this church right now and you're a member of this church or this is the only church you go to, if you have no recurring history of serving in this church, you know what you're saying by your inaction? You are essentially saying by just sitting on your butts every Sunday and just leaving, you are saying, Jesus didn't bleed for me. That's what you're saying. By not serving in the church, by not serving other brothers and sisters in Christ, and you call yourself a genuine follower of Christ, if you are just doing nothing, You are saying by your inaction, I'm not part of this family. Jesus didn't bleed for me. That is what you're saying. Every Christian has the responsibility to minister in the church because this is your spiritual family. This is your family. And just like every member of the family, you have a responsibility to do your part. Now, with that said, let me be careful that you don't take what I'm saying to an extreme. 
God says you are to care for your spiritual family. But that doesn't mean that is the only family he cares about in regards to your ministry. Look again at what Paul says in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. You see that phrase, mature manhood? That's a very odd phrase for Paul to use because it's referring to something very specific. What is it referring to? Listen to what Peter O'Brien, a very well-known Australian New Testament scholar, says here. He says this, quote, The phrase mature man is somewhat unusual since the term for an adult male or full-grown man is used rather than the generic word for man or human. Why is Paul using a specific word that describes a man who is mature? Why? In the ancient world, that phrase mature manhood referred to one thing and one thing only. It referred to a man who was married, who had kids, and took care of his family. That is what mature manhood is. Why is Paul using that phrase to refer to that idea in the context of the third ministry every Christian is to do? It's because Paul is teaching us. There is another family that God holds us to minister as, and that is our biological family. God doesn't just want you to care for your spiritual family. He expects you to care for your biological family as well. Listen to what he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. He says this, But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own households, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. Paul is saying that the spiritual gifts God gives you are not supposed to be only for those who go to church with you. It's also for the people who live in your house. Husbands, you are a pastor to your wife. Parents, you are pastors to your children. Siblings, you are pastors to your brother and sister. You are ministers in the family. Okay? God does not take delight when Christians neglect this crucial ministry. I mean, Paul says that they're worse than unbelievers. That's a very hardcore charge to say against somebody. To where if you're doing ministry in the church, but you don't do any ministry at home, Paul says you're worse than an unbeliever. I think this is something we need to hear, especially in the Korean church. Because in so many cases, we see situations where in our parents' generation, they do all this ministry at church, 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 and church, and yet their children are growing up in a very screwed up way. Right? We have pastors and elders leading churches, and their children are doing drugs, sleeping around, doing all this vicious things. And we prop them up as spiritual leaders of the church. They're not. God does not let us off the hook. For neglecting the spiritual family of, excuse me, the spiritual ministry to our family just because we're spending all our time at church. Listen, if a father finds out that his son is skipping out in school and he confronts his son, he says, son, what's going on? Why aren't you going to school? And the son's like, dad, I have to miss school. I don't have time to go to school because I'm so busy doing chores at home. You know the chores you keep telling me I have to do? The chores are so important that you command me to do? I'm so busy doing chores at home, I don't have any time left over to do, you know, schoolwork. Do you think that dad is going to be like, wow, son, I'm glad you got your priorities straight. Good job. No. That dad's going to be like, boy, you better get your butt to school and you better do your chores. Why? 
Because the father knows that he doesn't want his son to focus on one thing in an obsessive way. He wants balance because God created us to be balanced people. He created us capable of doing multiple ministries at once, right? In fact, God is so confident that, he's, that we're able to do ministry to God, ministry to the church, ministry to the family, that he adds on two more ministries that God says we are to do. Let's look at them again, right? Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Excuse me, schemes. See those two phrases, human cunning and craftiness and human schemes? The last two ministries that every Christian is to do. Let's quickly go through them. First, craftiness and deceitfulness schemes. What's a scheme? Merriam-Webster gives this definition of the word scheme. A clever and often dishonest plan to do or get something. Schemes are what con men do. Schemes are what rip-off artists do. Schemes are what mobsters, sex traffickers, drug cartels do to provide for themselves and for their families to make a living. Paul says, as followers of Jesus, that's not how we behave. Why? Because he's trying to teach us a fourth ministry that God calls every Christian to do. And that is the ministry of our vocation, the ministry of our work, the ministry of our career. If you skip down a couple verses in Ephesians 4, which we didn't include, Paul writes this word, starting in verse 21. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, listen, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Paul is telling us that when you believe the gospel, when you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sin, it changes your life. And one area of life it changes is your work life, your vocational life, your career life. God cares about how you work in this city, in this world, just as much as he cares about how you serve in the church He wants you to work with integrity. He wants you to work with due diligence. He wants you to work with honesty. Where the ultimate goal of your work is to what? Serve others, especially those who are in need. Do you guys know one popular way Christians tear down the reputation of the church? Do you want to know one common universal way that many Christians today just just totally mess up the church's reputation before the world? It's when Christians do sloppy work, lazy work, dishonest work, self-promoting work. There are some Christians out there, I don't get it. They're so spiritually devout, and yet they're the most terrible employees to hire. As if that, that's okay, right? That the only thing God cares about is spiritual matters. He doesn't care about your secular job. Wrong. God sees your vocation not as an opportunity for you to get people to praise you. God sees your vocation as an opportunity for you to get people to praise him. Let me say that again. God sees your vocation not as an opportunity to get people to praise you. God sees your vocation in this world as an opportunity to get people to praise God as they see you work. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands just as we've instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live. You hear what Paul says? That phrase, quiet life, by the way, means you're not shouting for attention. 
You're not shouting for a promotion. You're not shouting for recognition. You're not shouting for all eyes to be on you and all praises to be directed to you. That's what he means by quiet life. Because you don't work to promote yourself. You don't work to give praise to yourself. You work to promote God and to add praises to him through your work. Here's the question, folks. New York professionals. When you work, do people even know that it's because of your love for Jesus or is it because they think that you love yourself? If you work with the way Paul instructs us here in 1 Thessalonians 4, people would see the church the way it should be as a church that's being built up for the sake of blessing this world, not a church that should be teared down because the world is, excuse me, that the church is nothing but toxic to the world. That is what Paul is teaching us. That's the fourth ministry God calls us to serve as ministers in our vocation, which leads me to the final and fifth ministry which God calls us to do. And this is captured in the phrase human cunning. That's such an interesting phrase, isn't it? Human cunning. Whenever you see that phrase in the Bible, it's always in the context of someone taking advantage of another person, usually someone who is incapable and disadvantaged, whether it's the poor, the widow, and the orphan. You see an example of it in Proverbs chapter 1. Listen to what it says. My child, if sinners entice you, turn your back on them. They may say, come and join us. Let's hide and kill someone just for fun. Let's ambush the innocent. Let's swallow them alive like the grave. Let's swallow them whole like those who go down to the pit of death. Think of the great things we'll get. We'll fill our houses with all the stuff we take. Come, throw in your lot with us, and we'll all share the loot. Here, the author is telling his son, do not become a person that victimizes people with human cunning. Why? Because God calls you to be a minister who does the opposite. God calls his followers to undermine the consequences of human cunning, the damage of human cunning, by going and ministering to people, not to victimize them, but to empower them, to undermine the victimization that we see in this world, whether you're talking about children who are sold as sex slaves, whether you're talking about women who are illegally brought in as prostitutes, whether you're talking about immigrants who have no voice of their own, whether you're talking about the homeless, the poor, the fifth ministry God calls each and every one of us to be is a minister of outward compassion to where we go out and we serve those who are misfortune, those who are being brutalized and victimized. If you're of the mind, say, hey, I'm not one of those social justice Christians. That's like, that's one of those people who are just into that. Those who are like into liberal theory and all that stuff. No. Those are Christians who are following the central core tenets of Christianity. The core essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, one of the core values that we have, our compassion, that part for the poor, to have your heart dislocated for those who are being killed and murdered and oppressed. We are called as the church to be a prophetic voice in this world. We are called to advocate for people who are getting unjustly beaten down by this world and the systems of the world. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross, he was thirsty, which means he was malnourished. He was stripped naked, which means he had no clothes. He was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem, which means he was homeless. He was abandoned by his own father in heaven to where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was made an orphan. Why did Jesus suffer these physical, emotional, social, and relational brokenness? To show us what he came to save us from. And what he calls followers of him to be agents of hope by alleviating these needs. You see? God has called 
every single one of us to be a minister of mercy. Not just deacons in the church, not just the mercy committee, but every single person who says, Jesus, you're my Lord, you are my Savior. So there you have it, folks. The five ministries that make up building up the body of Christ. First and foremost, your ministry to know God, your ministry to your church family, your ministry to your biological family or the family that you raised and who raised you, your ministry to the world by serving through your vocation to better the world, and your ministry to the world by serving the least of these, the poor, the oppressed, and the forgotten. And for the next five weeks, we're going to look at each and every one of these singular ministries that every Christian is called to serve as a minister. I hope you're ready for it. It's going to be a one fun ride, and hopefully it will enable you to live out the life metaphor that God calls us to have. Life is ministry you are created to serve. Let's pray. Father, as we think more about what our life is, we live in a world that says it's a sport, that it's a carousel, that it's a game of cards, that it's a box of chocolates. Father, the common idea behind all of these life metaphors is that it's so self-absorbed. And yet, Father, you call us to have a different life metaphor. You call us to have a metaphor of life that is consistent to what Jesus did for us. His life was a life of ministry where he came to serve, not be served. And, Father, we know that when you gave us new life in him, you call us to have that same mission in life. We are here in this world not to be served but to serve. You've called us to be ministers of our great Christ. And so, Father, I pray that in the next five weeks as we go through this study, you would teach us, you would humble us, and that you would equip us to be faithful pastors in this world. Help us do that now, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give, but to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.